Hello everybody, this is Dan Trotter, Pretty Good Bible Studies. I am now in Revelation chapter 11. I'm going to do the first 14 verses of that chapter, and we will begin our discussion of the two witnesses. This is one of the hardest chapters in the book of Revelation, in my opinion. Ranks right up there with it, chapter 20 in the millennium. But I'll give it my best shot. We start, well, the first the context uh, in the previous chapter, chapter 10, we were at an interlude between the 6th and 7th trumpet. We saw the angel coming from heaven. That was Jesus. He had a little scroll that John was to eat, bitter and sweet at the same time. Before that, we were we had just discussed the 5th and the 6th trumpet in Revelation 9. You recall there were seven seals of a will. The testament was the new covenant to be delivered to the world, to Jesus, to his people. The seventh seal were the seven trumpets. Now, so we're in an interlude between the 6th and 7th seals here in Revelation 11. This is similar to the interlude that was between the 6th and 7th trumpets, which were, excuse me, the it was similar to the interlude between the sixth and seventh seals, which were in chapter seven. That interlude was there. The 144,000 saints were sealed. And of course, that 144,000 was symbolic of the new covenant saints. So that's where we are. And we'll see that that interlude with the 144,000 saints sealed between the sixth and seventh seal is very similar to this interlude between the sixth and seventh trumpet because in both of these trumpets, the New Testament people of God are sealed and protected by God who owns them. So we start in Revelation 11, verse 1. Then there was given me a measuring rod like a staff, and someone said, Get up and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship it. Now, this measuring rod, the imagery is taken from Ezekiel 40 through 43, those four chapters. There we have an angelic priest who's measuring the ideal temple, which is symbolic of the new covenant also. Now, this measuring is supposed to show ownership and protection. And so the temple of God is measured. The measuring rod, like a staff, some translations have a reed, John is supposed to take that measuring rod and draw around the temple of God and the altar and those who worship in it. Now, the temple of God, that is literally the Greek is naos, which means the holy place. But usually the naos in the Old Testament is the holy of holies, the most holy place. So we have a split of opinion between two of my Orthodox Preterist commentators that I'm using, Steve Bruce Gore, says that the naos is the holy of holies, where David Chilton says, no, it's the holy place. The holy place being the place where the table of showbread and the seven-branch candlestick and the golden altar stand. Well, I'm not going to get too concerned over that. The point is, is that people outside the temple of God, outside the naos, that would be people as you go out the tabernacle, out of the temple, you get into the courts, that represents the place of the Gentiles. They're not protected. And so, ironically, the people in Israel are now taking the place of the people of Gentiles, people who are not subject to the protection and ownership of God anymore because God has cast them out and getting ready to destroy them. But in the midst of the judgment falling on those people, the people who are in the temple, that's the New Testament saints, they're going to be protected and sealed, just like the 144,000 saints were sealed in chapter 7. Now, the temple in the New Covenant, of course, is the New Covenant people of God, the church, the temple in the New Covenant is not a physical temple in Jerusalem. We know this. Hebrews 8.5, the Old Testament priests serve unto the example, the type, the copy, and shadow of heavenly things. And Moses was admonished of God when he was about to make the tabernacle. For see, saith he, that thou make all things according to the pattern showed to you on the mount, Mount Sinai. So the Old Testament temple is a shadow. It's not the real thing. Hebrews 9.24 For Christ is not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the true. So the physical temple or the physical tabernacle made with hands are figures of the true. Pictures, if you will. But Christ goes into heaven itself, which is the real thing, the real temple. Hebrews 6.19 and 20 Which hope we have is the as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast and which entereth into that within the veil, whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus made a high priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Did Jesus enter into a physical temple, or did he enter into a heavenly temple when he died on the cross and resurrected? He went into a heavenly temple. Hebrews 10:19. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, 
So who enters into the temple with Jesus? The brethren, having therefore brethren, boldness to enter. So you see this temple here that John is talking about is the spiritual temple, the church of Christ, measured and protected. And you notice that the people in that temple are those who worship in it, in verse 1, Revelation 11. They're measured. So they're in the temple and they worship, because that's what the New Testament people do, is they worship. And, of course, people who are in the temple, they are priests. And in the New Testament, all Christians are priests, and all Christians worship. Revelation 1 seeks to show that we're priests, and God has made us, has made us kings and priests unto God and his Father. Revelation 5.10, and God has made unto us our God kings and priests, and we shall reign on the earth. So we're kings, we're priests. And already in Revelation, we see God's people worshiping in the holy place. Just as John says in Revelation chapter 11, verse 1, people worshiping in the holy place. That's what the church does, worships. We read that in Revelation 1, 6. Excuse me. We see that in Revelation 5, 8. And when he had taken the book, the four beasts and four and twenty elders, they stand for the church, fell down before the Lamb, having every one of them harps and golden vials full of odors, which are the prayers of the saints. They had harps because they were worshiping. Revelation 8, 3 and 4. And another angel came and stood at the altar, having a golden censer. And there was given unto him much incense that he should offer it with the prayers of all saints upon the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense which came with the prayers of the saints ascended before God. That just shows that the golden altar has prayers. And of course, prayers are a part of worshiping God in the holy place. Notice, and this is easy to overlook when you read it, notice that the direct object of that which is measured is not only the temple, but it's also those who worship in the temple. Get up and measure the temple and those who worship in it. Get up and measure the temple and measure those who worship in it. So the temple of God is protected, and of course the temple of God is the church. We're protected, we're sealed, and we need to remember that when we think about judgment falling on the earth. There's always protection for the saints. James P. Jordan, the Reformed theologian, says that this measurement, quote, correlates to guarding because it sets up and establishes boundaries and bears witness regarding whether or not those boundaries have been observed. You don't touch the people of God. And what did, didn't that actually happen? As Jesus said, when you see the armies that cause abomination, the abomination of desolation surrounding Jerusalem, get up, hightail it out of Jerusalem, which the church did. It's a great story. I'm not going to go over it again, but it's when Cestius Gallus, the Roman general who started the siege of Jerusalem in the first five months of the Jewish war, he inexplicably withdrew. The zealots chased the Roman army out, beat them at Beth Horon. While they were doing that, the Christians, having seen the city surrounded, they flee, fled, just like Jesus told them to do, and they went to Pella and were protected. So this sealing is, was actually carried out in history, this measurement to protect was carried out in history. Revelation 11:2. leave out the court, which is outside the temple, and do not measure it, for it has been given to the nations, that's to the Gentiles, and they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. So the apostate Jews, who are not allowed to come into the temple because of their sin, they've been given to the nations, to the Gentiles, they're getting wiped out by the Romans. And the nations, the Romans, were tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. 42 months is three and a half years, which is the length of the Jewish war between AD 66 and AD 70. And so they will trample or tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. And that's what happened. The Romans came in and tromped all over Israel. And so, ironically, the apostate Jews, who were formerly the chosen people, now take the place of the Gentiles as those who could not enter the presence of God. Now notice it's the holy city that's trampled underfoot by the Gentiles, by the Romans for three and a half years of the Jewish war for 42 months. The holy city, it's called, that's what it was called, but that's not what it was, because it wasn't holy anymore. Just the name. Now the 42 months, which I've said was literally fulfilled in the Jewish war, and that's true. However, that's a standard time, a standard period of time, and it stands for half a seven. 42 months is exactly three and a half years, which is half of a seven. Seven is divine perfection. Half of seven stands for gloom, doom, depression, destruction, anguish, disaster, half of God's perfection. And it's expressed in Revelation in different units. For example, it, sometimes it's 42, this, and here it's 42 months. Sometimes it's 1260 days. Sometimes it's three and a half years. And sometimes it's times, time, times, and half a time. 
Now, to show you the symbolism of three and a half years, we can look at Old Testament scriptures such as Daniel 7.25, And the little horn shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change times and laws, and that shall be given into his hand until a time, the times, and the dividing of time, or time, times, and half a time, which is one time plus two times, that's three, and half a time, that's three and a half years. The wearing out of the saints shows that that time, times, and dividing of time is a time of judgment. How about the symbolism of three and a half years referring to wrath and judgment due to apostasy? Remember, there was three and a half years of drought between Elijah's first appearance to the kingdom of Jezebel and the defeat of Baal on Mount Carmel. First Kings 17, chapter 18. You can read that story, which I'm sure you're aware of. James quotes this in James 5.17, and he says, Elias, that's Elijah, was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain. And it rained not on the earth by the space of three years and six months, three and a half years. So there is a perfect symbol of judgment. No rain for three and a half years, that's judgment. Here's an example where three and a half years refers to sadness, death, and destruction. Daniel 12.7. And I heard the man clothed in linen, he raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for time, times, and half a time. That when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end, all these things will be finished. The holy people, of course, were the Jews. They were shattered at the end of the Jewish war. The Jewish war lasted three and a half years. And you see there that there is literally fulfilled and that the three and a half year period means death and destruction. Revelation 12, 6 and verse 14. And the woman fled into the wilderness, that's the church, where she has a place prepared of God, and they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and threescore days, a thousand two hundred and sixty days. And to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness into her place, where she is nourished for a time, times and half a time from the face of the servant. Serpent, that was referring to the Christians that I just mentioned who left Jerusalem for Pella in eighty sixty six. And they stayed there for time, times, and half time. They stayed there for the three and a half years of the Jewish war. Revelation 13, 5. And there was given unto him, that's the sea beast, the Roman Empire, a mouth speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. The Romans oppressed Jerusalem for three and a half years, which is forty-two months, during the Jewish war. Now you notice that I gave you a lot of literal times there where it was fulfilled. Now, David Chilton says that you shouldn't do that, really, that really the three and a half years is a symbolic number. And I'm sort of torn on that because there's so many times it fits literally, but then maybe it doesn't all the time. But Chilton points out very interestingly that the time frame, the time period, is arranged chiastically in chapter 11, chapters 11, 12, and 13. Now, chiasm is... It's hard to talk about. It's easy to see. Let me just let me just um, tell you how it works orally and see if I can do it. First of all, the time period is referred as 42 months at the at, at two extreme points, chapter 11, 2 and verse 13, 5, 42 months. Then we'll go to 11, 3 and we'll get 1260 days and then we'll go to 12, 6 where it's 1260 days. So we're getting closer and closer away from those extreme midpoints and then after 11:3 we go to 11:11 and it's three and a half days which is right in the middle of the chiasm all that's kind of interesting but like i say i don't really focus on literary structures too much but that one was too interesting to let go and it does sound like it's meant to be symbolic so symbolic maybe but literal sometimes now i need to point out one little problem It has been given to the nations that they will tread underfoot the holy city for 42 months. Well, I've already said that Rome trampled on Jerusalem for 42 months during the Jewish war, and that's fine. But it doesn't actually say Jerusalem. Excuse me. It says the holy city, but the Romans didn't exactly trample on the holy city for 42 months. They trampled on the land of Israel for 42 months, not just the city. The siege of the city was only at the beginning and end of the war. Well, how do you handle that? Well, somebody brought that up to me on one of my YouTube videos. And after doing a little research, I came up with an, an answer, which I really don't think is necessary, but which, I, which, which I'll give anyway. We have in our verse in Revelation here, Revelation 11:2, that the Gentiles, not the Romans, it doesn't say the Romans, it says the Gentiles trampled the holy city. Well, actually, during that 
three and a half years, there was all kinds of non-Jews trampling Jerusalem. The zealot Simon bar Giora was from Gerasa in the Decapolis, which was a Gentile area. The Edomians were in there, they, and they played a large part in the latter defense. In the later defense of Jerusalem, they were Gentiles, not Jewish. The Jews themselves had the word nations applied to them, goyim, and there were plenty of Jews trampling down Jerusalem for 42 months. So that's one way you could answer it, but I, don't, I think it's easier to answer than that. And the question, let me repeat the problem. The problem is, it says that the holy city is trampled, not the whole nation. But as a matter of fact, the Roman, the Gentiles, the Roman army trampled the whole nation, but not Jerusalem for 42 months. Well, my answer to that is, if somebody told you that an occupying army came to America and trampled down America for three and a half years, but they never occupied Washington, they just occupied the rest of the country. But if you lived in Washington, D.C., would you not feel trampled down? The Roman army, in trampling down all of Israel, basically trampled down the capital of the country. I don't think it's necessary to make such a big distinction there. All right, we go to Revelation 11, chapter 3, verse 3. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. Now, here we come to the famous two witnesses. I remember one time, I'll never forget it. I was at a little country church in the country here in South Carolina, and this man walks in. He had a long white beard on, and he announced that he was one of the two witnesses. And we had another guy in the church, he's an old country boy, had a white beard, got <laughs> long white hair, and this guy says, I'm one of those two witnesses, and I think this other guy is one of the other two witnesses. I remember thinking, this is nuts. No. I don't know what it is about the two witnesses that excites nonsense in a lot of people. Well, let's see who the two witnesses are. First of all, they're prophets. It says this in verse 3, I will grant authority to my two witnesses and they will prophesy. So we're talking about prophets. And we see from the description of the two witnesses in later verses here in chapter 11 that these two prophets were Moses and Elijah. They were also connected with other prophetic figures like Joshua and Zerubbabel in the exilic times right around 520 B.C. when they came back from Babylon in exile. And we'll talk about that in a minute. So just, first of all, the two witnesses of prophets, let's keep that in mind. Why were they two? Well, because all judgments by law require two witnesses for verification. And so here we need to have two prophets to establish the truth of Israel's wickedness. They were, there needed to be two witnesses which would testify that Jerusalem needs to be capitally executed. All right, so the two witnesses are prophets. Now, as Bruce Gore and the pulpit commentary say, these two prophets were, prophets were probably Moses and Elijah. Moses represents the law. Elijah represents the prophets. Because Moses, of course, was the great lawgiver, and Elijah was one of the greatest prophets. Now, David Chilton says that it's not just Moses and Elijah. It refers to all Old Testament prophets because of later references to, to Joshua in the time of the, exilic, uh, time of the exile, the, the return from the exile. So I, I can go along with Chilton on that, but it's just easier to look at Moses and Elijah as law and the prophets, law and the prophets. So we'll stick with that for right now. And this law and the prophets ultimately represent the new covenant church, which preached the law and the prophets. The law and the prophets pointed to Christ and the early church preached Christ. So the law, so the two witnesses ultimately represent the church of Jesus Christ preaching the gospel. Now I said that just for you to take as a matter of faith right now, I'm going to have to back it up a little bit as we go, which I will. Now, they will prophesy for 1260 days. Now, the witness of the church for 1260 days. Now, here's a situation where Bruce Gore points out that the 1260 days are symbolic, and it refers to the time of, of distress between Jesus' first and second advent and the run-up between Jesus' resurrection and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. And these Christians will be prophesying, prophesying, pro witnessing, witnessing of the truth of the gospel. They're clothed in sackcloth because they're getting ready to produce judgment, pronounce judgment on Israel. Chilton says the 1260 days actually represent all of Israel's history, which I have trouble. Gore says the 30 to 70 AD period. And he says later on when these prophets are killed, that's when the zealots take over Jerusalem. I really don't think that's it. I, that just doesn't grab me. It could be the preaching of the gospel during the Jewish war itself. That's my idea. That would make the 1260 days literal, not just symbolic. All right, these guys are dressed in sackcloth. This is the typical symbol of a prophet. 
Second Kings 1.8, they replied a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. It's Elijah, the prophet. He, had, he was a hairy man with a leather belt around his waist. Sackcloth type of clothes. Matthew 3, 4. Now John had a camel hair garment with a leather belt around his waist. So dressing rough like that was how what prophets did. This is appropriate here because they're going to be mourning over the destruction of Jerusalem. They need to be dressed as sackcloth. It's the symbol of a prophet. It's also the symbol of doom, gloom, judgment, and mourning. We go to verse 4, Revelation 11. These, these two witnesses, are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Now the two lampstands are clearly a reference to that which is given us in Zechariah 4, verses 1 through 3. Let me read that. The angel who was speaking with me, Zechariah, then returned and aroused me as one awakened out of sleep. He asked me, what do you see? I replied, I see a golden, a solid gold lampstand with a bowl at the top. The lampstand also has seven lamps at the top with seven spouts for each of the lamps. There are also two olive trees beside it, one on the right of the bowl and the other on the left. So you got two lampstands in Zechariah, you got one lampstand. Now, I don't know why there's only there's two in Revelation and only one in Zechariah. The only thing I can think of is vision in Revelation. Jesus wanted to keep the, the scheme of two together. Two witnesses, two olive trees, two lampstands, two lampstands giving light. I think that's why that was done. That would be my guess. Now, so this lampstand in the Old Testament stands for Old Testament Israel giving light to the nations, which, of course, is eventually fulfilled in the church, which gives light to the world because Jesus is the light of the world. Now, how does the lampstand in Zechariah, how does it get give its light? It has to have oil. Well, if you've got two living olive trees by the lampstand and the olive trees are connected to the bowl on top of the lamp out of which the seven candlesticks proceeded, then that means there's a continuous supply of oil. And a continuous supply of oil stands for the continuous supply of the Holy Spirit. Let me read Zechariah 4, verses 5 and 6. Don't you know what they are? Replied the angel who was speaking with me. I said, no, my Lord. So he answered, this is the word of the Lord is Zerubbabel, not by strength or by might, but my spirit, says the Lord of armies. Don't you know what they are? means what the, lamp, what the two lampstands are. Excuse me, the two olive trees are. The Holy Spirit providing the light of Israel, which becomes the light of the world. Now, the two witnesses of Zechariah chapter 3 and chapter 4, to which the two olive trees that John says, that John mentions in Revelation 11:4, those two olive trees in Revelation are the two, two olive trees of Zechariah 3 and 4. And who are those two olive trees in Zechariah 3 and 4? Joshua the priest in chapter 3 and Zerubbabel the king in chapter 4 of Zechariah. Zechariah 4.14 says, Then said he, These are the two anointed ones that stand by the Lord of the whole earth. Anointed ones, that means oil has been placed on them, the oil goes into the lampstand. So Joshua and Zerubbabel, Joshua being the priest, Zerubbabel being the king, are putting oil because of their anointing. They're channeling oil right into the lampstand to provide light for Israel. Now, a little note here, Zechariah doesn't explicitly say Joshua and Zerubbabel are the anointed ones, but many commentators do because a king and a priest are both anointed. Zerubbabel being the king and Joshua being the priest. So, let's review the symbolism in Zechariah. There's a bowl on top of the lampstand. The olive trees on each side have a branch that goes to the bowl, and the two olive trees then pour oil into the bowl at the top of the light, and then the bowl funnels the oil down from the bowl into the seven lamps and the seven lights are lit. The seven lights, according to David Chilton, stand for the eyes of God. I prefer to think it's Israel giving light to the world. Seven, of course, being the symbol of divine perfection. So you get perfect light going to the world. And of course, that is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. That's all a type, a shadow. The reality, the ultimate light of the world is Jesus, the Messiah. Let me summarize all that. The two witnesses refer to the ministry of prophets, priests, and kings. Prophets, why? Because one is Moses, and Moses is said to be a prophet. He's a lawgiver, but he's also a prophet. And Elijah, of course, is a prophet. Priest. The two witnesses refer to priest because of the reference to the passages in Zechariah where Joshua is one of the lampstand, one of the uh, olive trees. And the two witnesses refer to kings because of the reference to Zechariah, where one of the olive trees was Zerubbabel. Prophet, priest, and king. 
That's what this, these two witnesses stand for. And that's the ministry of the law and the spirit. Excuse me, the law and the prophets. We go to verse 5 of Revelation 11. And if anyone wants to harm them, fire flows out of their mouth and devours their enemies. So if anyone wants to harm them, he must be killed in this way. Now remember, Jesus said that the early church was going to be protected as it went out preaching the, the culmination of the law and the prophets, which was Jesus. They went out and preached. And he said, don't worry about what you're going to say when they drag you before the synagogues. I'll tell you what to say. He basically said they were going to be protected. He said, don't fear those who have the ability to kill the body but can't kill the soul. I'm going to be with you. You need to persevere through the great tribulation and all that, but you're going to make it. So if anyone wants to harm the messengers of the church, fire will flow out of their mouth. Fire is a symbol of judgment. And you notice it comes from their mouth because of what they speak is going to deliver them. When they speak words by the Holy Spirit, devours their enemies. The church marched right on, went through the persecution. After AD 70, when the Jewish temple went down, the church then spread out and went out all over the world. Verse 5, So if at the end, So if anyone wants to harm them, harm the two witnesses, he must be killed in this way. In other words, killed by the fire that flows out of their mouth. And of course, killed is a strong way of saying stopped because of the word of God. Now fire that flows out of the two witnesses' mouth is a standard symbol, the fire is, a standard symbol for the power of the prophetic word. Judgment. Number 1635, and they came out a fire from the Lord and consumed the 250 men that offered incense during Korah's rebellion. Second Kings 1, 9 through 12, then the king, that's Ahaziah, sent unto him, unto Elijah, a captain of 50 with his 50, and he went up to him and boldly sat on the top of a hill, and he spoke unto him, you man of God, the king has said, come down. And Elijah answered and said to the captain of 50, if I be a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Then they came down the fire from heaven and consumed him and his 50, and then it went on, he did it again. Fire came down and consumed 50, and then fire came, I don't know, two or three times. Fire's coming down, consuming 50 people at a time. They're obviously... Fire is a symbol of judgment. I think the fire was probably lightning that got them. We go down to Revelation chapter 11, verse 6. These have the power to shut up the sky, these two witnesses. Have the power to shut up the sky so that rain will not fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every plague as often as they desire. Now here is how we, rec how we recognize the two prophets as being Moses and Elijah. Because who had the power to shut up the sky? That was Elijah in Malachi 4, verses 4 through 5. Malachi says this, Remember you the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. Now, of course, that Elijah was actually fulfilled in John the Baptist. Not literally talking about Elijah, but typologically, if you will. John the Baptist came, as we know, mentioned in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke. Matthew eleven fourteen, Matthew seventeen, ten through thirteen, and Luke one, fifteen through seventeen. Now, so we know so how do we know that one of the witnesses is Elijah? Because he has the power to shut up the sky. You recall the stories where James which James mentions in James chapter five, verse seventeen, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it might not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months when he's praying over the Jezebel kingdom of the northern kingdom. He said time for some judgment, no rain for three and a half for three and a half years, no rain. So that's how we know because that phrase shut up the sky that James mentions, he's quoting, of course, the Old Testament account of the story. Shut up the sky? Well, that's mentioned here in Revelation 11.6. These have the power to shut up the sky. Elijah representing both of the prophets, he has the power to shut up the sky. So that's Elijah. So that rain will not fall. And the next phrase, they have power over waters to turn them into blood. That's referring to Moses when he turned the water of the Nile River into blood, one of the plagues. And the two witnesses have the power to strike the earth with every plague. Well, that's obviously talking about Moses. So this is easy. Verse 6 is easy. We're talking about Moses and Elijah. Let me read the passages in Exodus where Moses did strike the water. Exodus 7.20, So Moses and Aaron did even as the Lord had commanded, and he lifted up the staff and struck the water that was in the Nile, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. And all the water that was in the Nile was turned to blood. Notice, strike the Nile. In Revelation 11:6, it strikes the earth, which I, mean, I guess means the 
physical elements of the planet strike the earth with every plague. Exodus 10:13. So Moses stretched out his staff over the land of Egypt, directed an east wind on the land, and all that day and all that night. And when it was morning, the east wind brought the locusts. So Moses is slapping the, the planet with his rod, and then now come the plagues. All right, well, John mentions that. So obviously one of the two witnesses is Moses. So Elijah and Moses. We go to verse 7, Revelation 11. When they have finished their testimony, the beast that comes out of the abyss will make war with them and overcome them and kill them. All right, so if we take the two witnesses as being the witness of the church, there's a time when they get wiped out. The beast, of course, is the devil coming out of the abyss as hell. Now, when is it that the two witnesses are killed? Well, Chilton says that Jesus was the last prophet, and so that's what is being referred to here. Jesus got killed. So when Jesus is killed, the testimony of the prophets may said to be killed. Now, we don't often think of Jesus as a prophet, but actually in Acts 3.22, we can see that he is a prophet. Moses said in Acts 3.22, The Lord God shall raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren, to whom you shall give heed in everything he says to you. So the Messiah Jesus is a prophet just like Moses is a prophet. Well, we often don't think of Moses as a prophet either, but he is. Moses was a prophet and Jesus was a prophet according to that verse, Acts 3.22. All right, so this opposition from the beast could have been on Jesus himself. And then when we see later the two witnesses come back to life, that means that Jesus came back to life. But Bruce Gore disagrees with that interpretation. He says that it's opposition to the church that is represented here so that the church will be wiped out. Well, for example, during the Jewish war, when the zealots had all the Christians bottled up in Jerusalem and the Christians were kind of stuck, they couldn't go out and minister and witness. But then things got turned around when the zealots got wiped out by the Romans. Well, whichever way it is, either opposition of the head, of the beast coming out and making war with the head and killing the head, Jesus, or whether it's the, the devil coming out of hell and overcoming the body, the church, the point is, is that it's going to look like the good guys have lost that the kingdom of God has been overcome. And how many times during the history of this planet does it look like the persecutors of the church have won? And yet they never do. The church always prevails. We go down to Revelation 11, verse 8. And there, that means the two witnesses, dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. All right, mystically just means spiritually. In fact, the NASB margin has it as spiritually. That means by revelation of the Holy Spirit. So with revelation of the Holy Spirit, we see that there's a great city where the two witnesses are lying. The great city is Jerusalem. How do we know that? Because that's where their Lord was crucified. Let me read chapter 11, verse 8 again. And their dead bodies will lie on the street of the great city, which mystically is called Sodom and Egypt, where also their Lord was crucified. Well, obviously, Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem. So the great city is Jerusalem. Now, the great city is also called Babylon in the book of Revelation. We read in Revelation 16, 19 this, the great city, the great city, just like in Revelation 11, 8, we see the dead bodies are lying in the street of the great city in Revelation 16, 19, the great city, Jerusalem, split into three parts and the cities of the nations fell. Babylon the great, was remembered in God's presence. So there in Revelation 16, 19, you have an identification of the great city, Jerusalem, with Babylon the Great. Babylon the Great was remember, remembered in God's presence. He gave her the cup filled with the wine of his fierce anger. All right, so Jerusalem is spiritually called, well, it's called the great city, which is Babylon, and is spiritually likened unto Sodom and Egypt. Why Sodom? Well, there are Old Testament scriptures which explicitly show that Jerusalem and Israel were considered as Sodom. Deuteronomy 29, verses 23 and 24. And that the whole land, therefore, thereof is brimstone and salt and burning, that is, it is not sown, nor bears, nor any grass grows therein, like the overthrow of Sodom and Gomorrah, Admah and Zebuin, which the Lord overthrew in his anger. And in his wrath, even all the nations should say, Wherefore has the Lord done this unto the land, i.e. the land of Israel? What means the heat of this great anger? So there we have judgment on the land likened to the overthrow of Sodom. Judgment on Israel, same as the overthrow of Sodom. Deuteronomy 32, 32. For their vine is the vine of Sodom, and of the fields of Gomorrah, their grapes are grapes of gall, their clusters are bitter. So there, Jerusalem is compared to Sodom, or Israel is compared to Sodom. Isaiah 1.10, hear the word of the Lord, ye rulers of Sodom. Give ear unto the law of our God, ye people of Gomorrah. Well, that verse doesn't directly tie Sodom with Israel. 
Let's go to Isaiah 3, 8 and 9. For Jerusalem is ruined and Judah is fallen because their tongue and their doings are against the Lord to provoke the eyes of his glory. The show of their countenance does witness against them and they declare their sin as Sodom they had at night. So their Jeru- the ruined Jerusalem is directly compared to Sodom. Woe unto their soul, for they have rewarded evil unto themselves. Jeremiah twenty three fourteen. I have seen also in the prophets of Jerusalem an horrible thing. They commit adultery and walk in lies. They strengthen also the hands of evildoers that none hath returned from his wickedness. They are all of them unto me as Sodom. So, so the prophets of Jerusalem are compared to Sodom. So there's another connection between Jerusalem and Sodom. Ezekiel 16:46. And your elder sister is Samaria. She and her daughters that dwell at thy left hand, and thy younger sister that dwells at thy right hand, is Sodom and her daughters. So Jerusalem said to be a sister with Sodom. So there's the connection. Sodom is known for its evil its homosexuality, and the great city where the Lord was crucified is likened unto Sodom. And that's what the book of Revelation is about, is the destruction of this evil Sodom, this great city, Jerusalem, where their Lord was crucified. Now, the great city, Jerusalem, is also compared with Egypt. There are no scriptures that show that Jerusalem can be tied in with Egypt, associated with Egypt. However, we know that Egypt is a place where there was bondage of the people of God, and the people of God in Egypt needed a deliverer, Moses. And now, so this Jerusalem that John is writing about is the new Egypt. It's apostate Jerusalem. It oppresses and enslaves the people of God, just like the old Egypt did. So the people of God need a deliverer, a new Moses, Jesus. Now, here's the scriptures that show that Moses, that Jesus is the new Moses. Acts 3, 20-23. And he shall send Jesus Christ, which was preached unto you, whom the heaven must receive until the times of restitution of all things, dot, 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 dot. For Moses truly said unto the fathers, a prophet shall the Lord your God raise up unto you of your brethren, liken to me. So there's a prophet like Moses. So Jesus is the new Moses. Moses predicted him. That's in Deuteronomy 18:15, I think, off the top of my head. Hebrews 3, 1 through 6. Wherefore, holy brethren, partaking of the partakers of the heavenly calling... Consider the apostle and high priest of our profession, Christ Jesus, who was faithful to him that appointed him, as also Moses was faithful in his house. So we got high priest Moses in the old... Well, actually, Moses wasn't the high priest. He was the, the lawgiver in the old covenant, and Jesus is the apostle and priest in the new covenant. So he takes Moses' place. For this man was counted worthy of more glory than Moses, inasmuch as he who hath built, his, built the house has more honor than the then the house. Moses was faithful in all his house as a servant, but Christ was a son over his own house. So there's the comparison between Moses and Christ because Israel is the new Egypt and needs a deliverer, needs a new Moses to go on the Exodus. Now, here's an interesting verse in Luke 9:31 that tends to back this up, this imagery of the church having to leave Egypt again, Egypt being apostate Jerusalem. Luke 9:31 They appeared in glory and were speaking of his departure. Now that word departure is exodon, which is exodus. So literally the verse says they appeared in glory and were speaking of his exodus which he was about to accomplish in Jerusalem. So Jesus's death is likened unto an exodus. New Moses taking the people on a new exodus outside of the bondage of Jerusalem which led to nothing but legalism and death. Revelation 11:9. those from the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations will look at their dead bodies for three and a half days. That means the dead bodies of the saints and will not permit their dead bodies to be laid in a tomb. Now, first of all, let's talk about the tomb business. There was a great desire by Old Testament Jews to be buried in the Holy Land as a pledge of their future resurrection. Let me give you some scriptures that kind of give you that feel for that. Genesis 47, 29 and 31. And the time drew nigh that Israel must die. And he called his son Joseph and said unto him, If I have found grace in thy sight, put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and deal kindly and truly with me. Bury me not, I pray thee, in Egypt. But I will lie with my fathers, and they shall carry me out of Egypt, and bury me in their burying place. So he's very concerned about where he's going to be buried. Because a Jew had to have a tomb. If he didn't have a, if he didn't have a tomb, he was disgraced. Genesis 49, 28-33, these are the twelve tribes of Israel. And this is, is it that their father spoken to them and blessed them, everyone according to the blessing he blessed them. 
dot, 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 dot. So then Jacob said, I'm about to be gathered. I am to be gathered unto my people. Bury me with my fathers in the cave that is in the field of Ephron the Hittite. That's in Machpelah near Hebron. In the cave that is in the field of Machpelah, which is before Mamre in the land of Canaan, which Abraham brought for possession of a burying place. Got to have a place to bury him. There they buried Abraham and Sarah. They buried Isaac and Rebekah. And they are buried Leah. And in fact, the Jews now have got a tradition that Adam and Eve were buried there. I mean, everybody's buried there. But the point is, if you want to honor somebody, you give them a nice tomb. That's, that's an idea that's in other cultures besides Israel. But these dead bodies, these two witnesses, they don't get to die and lie in a tomb because they're totally humiliated and disgraced, desecrated. They're lying in the streets and the vultures are picking their bodies so it looks like the bad guys have won. So then, not only are the apostate Jews who put the two witnesses there, it doesn't really say that. It says their dead bodies will lie in the street. It says the devil kills the two witnesses. But we can assume that the apostates were the agents of the devil. And so they're lying there, and it looks bad for the Christians. Jesus is killed. The New Testament church went through the great apostasy before eighty seventy. The church was not doing well. It looks like the witness is over. And then we got peoples from tribes and tongues and nations are looking at those dead bodies too. Well, that's a typical phrase for the Gentiles. So it's not only the apostate Jews that are celebrating the death of the Christian witness, but so is the, or so are the Gentile nations rejoicing. Well, why is that? Well, first of all, let's point out there's a problem for the preterist view here because the Gentiles are now rejoicing over prophets who are dead in Jerusalem. Why would the Gentiles care about prophets who are dead in Jerusalem? Well, here's some options. It could be that the Romans themselves rejoiced in the persecution of righteousness. In other words, they love to see the Christian witness shut down. I mean, after all, the Romans at various times in their history were not too friendly to the church. In fact, sometimes the emperors instituted persecutions, governmental persecutions of the church. So it could be the Romans are just as happy when, when Jerusalem goes down. They say, well, they're the Jews. Of course, the Romans identified Jews and Christians, so they see the, the temple go down. They say, that's the it for the, shall I say, the Judeo-Christian religion. It's over. To me, that's the easiest way to answer it, that Rome and Israel are allied together in opposing the church of Jesus Christ. But Bruce Gore's got another way of dealing with this. He says that not only the Jews in Jerusalem rejoice over the death of the Christian witness, but that there are Gentiles in Jerusalem that are so rejoicing because Jerusalem was a hub of the ancient world with a lot of Gentile traffic. It was a microcosm of the ancient world. It had a diverse population, not just Jews. It was on a major trade route that connected Egypt with Anatolia and Mesopotamia. So they had a lot of Gentiles coming through the city to do, to do trade, and they had a large tourist visitation too because Herod's temple drew a lot of tourists. So there could have been a lot of Gentiles in the nation rejoicing with the Jews. Now, I tend to discount Bruce Gore's solution a little bit because if you take the witness being having been killed, the two witnesses having been killed during the Jewish war or at the end of the Jewish war, well, I mean, there was no trade and tourist trade to Jerusalem during that time. It was under siege. People were starving in the city and all that would have been interrupted. But if you take I just don't know. I, I just don't think that Bruce Gore's solution really fits there. I think that what this is talking about, remember the major, one of the major themes of Revelation is that there were two persecuting entities that came after the church, the Romans and the Jews. Well, here's the, all the peoples and tribes and tongues and nations. That's the Romans along with the Jews. They're saying, hot dog, Christianity is dead. The testimony of the law and prophets is over. The two witnesses are gone. Now, this time of celebration of the death of the gospel is only for three and a half days. That just shows is a, it's a short period of time. Now, this three and one half days representing the short period of oppression of the two witnesses, the short period of, of the check of the spread of the gospel, could refer to Jesus himself because he was actually in the grave for three days, which is close to three and a half days, but not exactly. I think the idea is that it's a short period of time. The ultimate triumph of evil was relatively short. So once that period was over, the prophets came to life, then we see that the pagan Romans failed to stop the spread of the gospel and the apostate Jews failed to stop the spread of the gospel. Spread of the gospel. We go to Revelation 11, verse 10, and those who dwell on the land will rejoice over them. So that's the Jews dwelling on the land. They will rejoice over the 
two dead prophets and celebrate. And they will send gifts to one another because these two prophets tormented those who dwell in the land. Yeah, they did. They kept saying that you people have killed the Messiah. You people are stiff-necked and you're going to hell, basically. So you need to repent. You know, that, that would be tormenting if you, if you were opposed to it. So the Gentiles are celebrating. Now the Jews are celebrating. The Gentiles celebrated in verse 9. Actually, it doesn't say they celebrated. It says they will look at their dead bodies. But I'm sure they were saying, ha, 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 we won, we won. Gentiles are celebrating, and now the Jews celebrate. Now, the interesting thing about the relationship between the Romans and the Jews is that they were allied right up until 66 AD, at the beginning of the Jewish war. And all of a sudden now, you got this big army coming down on Jerusalem, and it might have put some consternation in the hearts of the ruling elite in Jerusalem because they were allied with these Romans, and now the Romans are attacking them. But still, at this stage of the peace, the apostate Jews and the Romans are joined with each other in celebrating the death of the gospel, the short-lived death of the gospel. Now, this idea of apostate Jews celebrating over Christians and persecuting them, it's everywhere in the New Testament. And here we see it in 1 Thessalonians 2, verses 14 and 15. For you, brethren, Paul writes, became followers of the churches of God, which in Judea are in Christ Jesus. For you also have suffered like things of your own countrymen. In other words, you brethren, you Jewish brethren, your own countrymen have persecuted you just like the church, the Jews persecute the Jewish church in Jerusalem. These Jews who both kill the Lord Jesus and their own prophets have persecuted us and they please not God and are contrary to all men. These Jews who kill the Lord Jesus. So you see, it wasn't only the Romans that killed Jesus, the Jews killed Jesus too. And they didn't quit with Jesus. They persecuted the early church. We see in verse 15, it says, these Jews have killed the Lord Jesus. This is 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. These Jews have killed the Lord Jesus and have persecuted us, persecuted the Christians. The disciples were not shy about naming the Jews as those who killed the, killed the Messiah. Acts 2, 23, this man, Peter says, delivered up by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you, meaning you Jewish leaders, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men, and that was the godless men of the Romans, and put him to death. So that verse right there is a good verse to show that both the Jews and the Romans killed Jesus. And so that's why we have the Gentiles celebrating, or watching at least, and probably celebrating in verse 9 and in verse 10, we have the Jews actually having a party over killing the Messiah. We go now to Revelation 11, verse 11. But after the three and one half days, the breath of life came from God, the breath of life from God came into them, and they stood on their feet, and great fear fell upon those who were watching them. So there's a resurrection here. The prophets are alive again. The two witnesses are alive. After that three and one half days, which I think stands for the three and a half days of the Jewish war, the church was set to go because they were no longer hindered by the persecuting Jews. And so the church stood on its feet. Now, David Chilton disagrees with that interpretation. He says the testimony of the prophets was, was revived when Jesus arose. I tend to think it's, no, if, you, if, you, if the prophets were representing the church and not Jesus particularly, then the breath of life came back into them when they were alive again and allowed to preach the gospel and weren't being persecuted anymore by the rabbinic authorities in Jerusalem. Great fear fell upon those who were watching them. Those who were watching them, of course, were the, the Gentiles, I guess the Jews too. Great fear because they realized, hey, we should have killed these people and we didn't. Can you imagine? They just thought they had Jesus taken care of. They crucified him on the cross, and all of a sudden, my gosh, the people are everywhere out preaching the gospel of this false Messiah, this blasphemer, and we can't stop it. And later on, when the Romans became aware of the Christians, they couldn't stop it either. And in fact, pretty soon the pagans went bye-bye, and the Christians ended up taking over the Roman Empire, the culture of it, the government of it. That's why they were afraid. They were afraid because the all-conquering Christ through his church was on the roll. Contrast that, if you will, with the sniveling, shivering, dispensationalist church cuddled down in a cave somewhere as the rocks fall on our heads and as the nuclear bombs fall and the Antichrist persecutes us and ruins the church and the great apostasy comes and men will be lovers of self and disobedient to parents and all hell's going to break loose. Compare that. The Orthodox Preterist view of Revelation is an eschatology of victory, folks. You like, vic you like defeat? Be a dispensationalist. You like victory? Be an Orthodox Preterist. We go to verse 12, Revelation 11. And they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, they as the two witnesses, who of course had just been 
had life come back into them because the breath of life from God had come into them. They heard this voice from heaven saying to them, come up here, come up here where where everyone is alive, living eternally. Then they went up into heaven, into the cloud, and their enemies watched them. So the two witnesses are vindicated. They've been resurrected. The Old Testament witnesses have passed their message to the church, and now the church preaches Christ, preaches Christ, the culmination of the law and the prophets. The witnesses have ascended to Christ and sit upon his throne, from which they rule over the ends of the earth. David Chilton says the two witnesses represent the witnessing church, which has received a divine command to come up here and has ascended with Christ into the cloud of heaven to the throne. That's some encouragement, folks. Revelation 11:13. and in that hour there was a great earthquake. And a tenth of the city fell, 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now, see, I think this here is talking about the destruction of Jerusalem, and it's tied with the previous verse where the two witnesses went up to heaven. The release of the witnesses from the persecution of the Jews, it fits. It fits very well there. So the church is on the march, but the apostate Jews are in a world of trouble. There was a great earthquake. That refers to the destruction of Israel in AD 66 through 70. A earthquake, of course, is like all decreation rhetoric, is a typical symbol of judgment and regime change. Let's look at some examples in the scriptures, Revelation 6:12. And I beheld when he opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake. Ezekiel 38, 19-20. For in my jealousy and the fire of my wrath have I spoken, God speaking. Surely in that day there shall be a great shaking in the land of Israel. And all the men that are upon the face of the earth shall shake at my presence. Well, that's... Not the earth shaking, that's men shaking, but the men are shaking because the land is shaking. Haggai 2, 6, and 7, For thus saith the Lord of hosts, Yet once it is a little while, and I will shake the heavens and the earth. There's the earthquake shaking the earth, and I will shake all nations. Matthew 27, 51 through 54. This is after the resurrection. And behold, the veil of the temple was rent in two from the top to the bottom, and the earth did quake. This was an earthquake at the resurrection. Time for regime change. And the veil of the temple was rent, probably because of that earthquake. It split the temple open, split the veil of the open, which means we now have confident access into the throne room of God with no obstructions. And then in Hebrews 12, 26 and 27 and 28, we read this, whose voice then shook the earth. And now he has promised yet once more, I shake not the earth only, but also heaven. Well, shaking the heaven and shaking the earth, that means it's regime change. Old Testament Israel's going down, yet once more signify the removing of those things that are shaken as of things that are made, that those things which cannot shake and may, may remain. Of course, the things that are made in the Old Testament temple, the Old Testament tabernacle, and so forth, things that which cannot be shaken is the kingdom of God. Now, notice here in this verse, I said it represented the fall of Jerusalem, but it only says a tenth of the city fell. Well, a tenth is a tithe, right? Now, there's two ways to explain that. One is that it's true, 100% of the city fell in 8070, but we're only in the trumpet judgments. We hadn't got to the bold judgments yet where 100% of the judgments and destruction is going to take place. The trumpets are an alarm. Maybe. I don't think you should be too tight on the timing of all this. I think the best way to explain that tenth is that God takes a tithe of Jerusalem because a tithe is a symbolic portion. You've heard people say all of your money belongs to God. So you give 10% of it. That 10% represents all the rest of it, which also belongs to God. So the 10th of Jerusalem is saying, Jerusalem belongs to me. She's mine. You get, I'm going to take a 10th of it, but the rest of it's mine too. And of course, that was the 10th was a down payment on the final destruction. 7,000 people were killed. That is a symbolic number. Seven is a symbol of divine perfection. Thousand is 10 times 10 times 10. As you know, 10 is the symbol of many, 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 many. So we got... A whole heap of people with divine perfection are being killed as God's perfect justice is carried out on rabbinic Jerusalem. That says 7,000 people killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Now that is a little bit concerning because we have a verse in Revelation 9.21, neither repented they of their murders, nor of their sorcerers, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. So we got there, people refuse to get converted. You remember there's another place in Revelation where they said, let the rocks fall on our heads, but we ain't going to bend our knee to God. Well, but here there's repentance. Now here's some possible solutions. Maybe the seals in chapter 9 didn't bring about conversion. That's that's Revelation 9:21. Neither repented they of their murders, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, maybe in chapter 9 there wasn't any conversion, but by the time we get to, to the trumpets in chapter 11, there was conversion. The problem with that, there's no historical evidence of this anywhere. So I don't think that's it. 
Maybe the rest that gave glory, the rest of the 7,000, the rest other than the 7,000 who were killed, they gave glory. Maybe they were giving glory out of fear, not due to conversion. In other words, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess, whether you like it or not. That could be. This is my idea here. Maybe the rest refers to those who weren't in the city, which would be the Christians who had escaped to Pella. doesn't really say who the rest were. The problem with that is it says the rest were terrified. Well, they might have been struck with terror as they held with their Pella. And I wonder if, I bet they could see the smoke of the, they weren't, what is it, about 40 miles away? I wouldn't be surprised if they started sawing the smoke of the temple coming up, the smoke of the city rising. They could have been terrified, even though they were safe in Pella and giving glory to the God of heaven. Not really sure what that means, but that's my best guess at it. It's talking about the people who weren't killed, the Christians. Now, being terrified and giving glory is biblical language for conversion and belief in the face of judgment, which would tend to make make us think that some people did accept Christ when they saw the disaster in Jerusalem. Jeremiah thirteen sixteen, give glory to the Lord your God because before he caused darkness and before your feet stumble upon the dark mountains and why you look for light. He turn it into the shadow of death and make it gross darkness. Give glory to God before you end up in darkness. Revelation 14, 7, saying with a loud voice, fear God and give glory to him for the hour of his judgment is coming, is come. Now see there, the Christians are told to give glory to God when judgment comes. We're supposed to glory in God's judgment. We should, we're supposed to glory when Antifa and Black Lives Matter is judged for their blasphemies and their antichrist philosophies. We're supposed to get Praise God. We're supposed to praise God when certain political parties, whose name I won't mention, advocate the murder of human beings in their mother's womb. When they're judged, we're supposed to give praise to God for that. Revelation 15:4. Who shall not fear thee, O Lord, and glorify thy name? There's the glory, for thou only art holy. For all nations shall come and worship before thee, for thy judgments are made manifest. We give glory for the judgments of God in history. Revelation 21:24. And the nations of them which are saved shall walk in the light of it. And the kings of the earth do bring their glory and honor into it. No mention of judgment, but this is a revelation where there's a lot of judgment. So anyway, there's glory everywhere associated with judgment. And so we can hope that maybe there were some conversions there. If not, it's talking about Christians who were given the glory. We go down to Revelation 11, verse 14. Before I do that, let me give you a quote from David Chilton. I like this quote. The tendency in the New Covenant age is judgment unto salvation. Usually we take such judgment and salvation as being opposites. But no, judgment brings salvation. When people are judged with AIDS or with sickness, and they'll say, oh man, I don't want to do that anymore. When they're judged with a horrible lifestyle, miserable marriages and all that, a lot of people say, I'm tired of living like this. I want to try something different. I want to try Jesus. We go to Revelation 11:14. The second woe is past. Behold, the third woe is coming quickly. The second woe is the sixth trumpet, which we've just spent a lot of time going over. Now, the sixth trumpet was the myriad of myriad horsemen coming from the Euphrates to kill a third of men on the land. And that army, of course, was the Roman army coming down to wipe out Israel, which it did. That's past. He's finished describing the army coming down and putting Jerusalem under siege. And now he says the third woe is coming quickly. Now, the third woe is the seventh trumpet. There was three woes. Woe, woe, woe. The fifth trumpet was the first woe. The sixth trumpet was the second woe. And the seventh trumpet is the third woe. So the seventh trumpet being the third woe is described. Oh, we can see that in Revelation 8.13. I looked and I heard an eagle flying high overhead, crying out in a loud voice. Woe, woe, woe. Three woes there. To those who live on the land, because of the remaining trumpet blast that the three angels are about to sound. The remaining trumpet blast, that's the fifth angel. Excuse me. Yes, that's the first woe is the fifth angel. The second woe is the sixth angel blowing the trumpet. And the seventh, the third woe is the seventh angel blowing the seventh trumpet. And, of course, the seventh trumpet consists of the seven chalice judgments, the seven bowl judgments. And that, if you take a chronological view of this, seeing the judgments getting worse and worse and worse, this is when Jerusalem's going to be 100% wiped out as opposed to a tenth of it being wiped out, as we just saw. So, ladies and gentlemen, I am finished with Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14. In Revelation 11, verses 15 through 19, which I will cover in my next audio, we will take a look at the seventh trumpet, the sounding of the seventh trumpet, and the temple being opened. I hope you stay tuned for that audio, and I hope you enjoy this one.